This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, front and center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. What is crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, coming at you with my co-host for the first half of this podcast anyway, Adam Frommel. We have a loaded episode to get to today. The second half of this podcast is going to be the Clippers look ahead, and we're bringing on SB Nation's Sabrina Merchant, does a great job covering the league and, and all the LA teams over there sp- specifically, so I'm excited to talk to her. That, again, will be at the back end of this podcast. If that's why you're here, feel free to skip forward to it. Adam and I, though, lots to talk about. Daryl Morey in Philadelphia. The Rockets hire Steven Silas. What does that mean for their future? LaMelo's ball, LaMelo Ball's draft stock is plummeting. Not LaMelo's balls. I don't know about the stock of LaMelo's balls, but LaMelo Ball's draft stock might be dropping. We will get to that. The Jazz were, were also sold. We, we may talk about that if we have time. First and foremost, though, shout out to our sponsors this week, Indeed and BetOnline.ag. Without them, this podcast would not be possible. And I just want to add this note. Please, please, pretty please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on uh, wherever you're getting your podcasts. Download every episode. Make, your, your, make sure you're subscribed. If you are not using iTunes, we still ask that you head over, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that five-star rating, write a review. We are reading them. It can include constructive criticism. We appreciate it all. That's the best way to help us out. And look, if you're enjoying these loaded episodes where we're trying to do deep dives into every single team, which we'll do the best we can with that, the, the league schedule right now, which we already talked about starting on December 22nd, might infringe upon some of that. I will try to bring as many teams on as possible before free agency starts and a little bit after it's over. But if you like these episodes, if you like that we're putting out, you know, between four to six hours worth of content every single week, we really do ask that you subscribe, download every episode, and go to iTunes and and rate and review us. It's very, 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 very much appreciated. Can't say that enough. With that 122nd intro out of the way, Adam, how you be? I'm doing good. It, uh, it snowed in Colorado and, and, and helped with the, the, the fires that had been raging just west of the Front Range. Um, so that was good, and it's starting to clear out now, which means that we can go back inside and uh, go back outside and, and play with uh, our toddler in some fields and stuff, which has been much better than being cooped up. How about yeah. you? Uh, one, it doesn't, it, from the pictures you have sent to me previously, you and our good friend Jacob, the air quality over there did not look like ideal at least like in certain parts. Some of those pictures were incredibly scary and all's well over here. Look, I'm not complaining because the temperature has been 
relatively high, though the impact of global warming like that obviously worries me. But it's been the temperature has been fine. I have not seen sunlight. I feel like in two or three weeks, it's just been raining constantly here. So hoping for some sunlight if I get lucky enough. But no real complaints. Otherwise, I'm actually look. We have to start here. Daryl Morey ending up with the Sixers after leaving Houston because he wanted to spend a year with his family. His his kids in college were going to take a gap year. Apparently, it ended up being a two week like gap two week whatever you call that um in 2020 that's like a full year that's also true that's that might be two full years by that point my i'll say my reaction first is that very few things absolutely for me right now like even though we don't know about them in advance this was something that legitimately floored me to see not necessarily the team but the swiftness with which it happened and i'm just curious as to your overall impressions of daryl morey ending up with the sixers as team president, also, you know, now elevating him over Elton Brand, who was the GM in place. And I think he deserves a lot of criticisms for what's happened there. But it also seemed like this was going to be the first year in which he kind of had carte blanche, where there weren't that many voices in the room, or at least ones that needed to be weighed more so or just as equally as his. And now clearly that's just not happening anymore. I'm I'm impressed by the move because I'm impressed by Daryl Morey. I think that if if the last decade or so has taught us anything about him, it's that he really is just a brilliant basketball mind who's wishing, who who's willing to to push the envelope to make controversial decisions and moves, all with the idea of bettering his team. I, I stand by the idea that I, I I wish Houston had had a chance to run it back because the experiment with microball never got a full chance to really pan out. You know, they were trying to fit the pieces that were already on the roster around them, even with the moves to bring in a guy like Robert Covington, uh, giving them a full offseason to actually figure things out with a healthy Russell Westbrook, who had started to to really play a lot better and smarter basketball prior to the NBA shutting down amid the coronavirus pandemic, like giving, giving that all a chance to be fully realized could have produced some better results instead of ending on sort of a sour note. Um, so yeah, just, I, I'm, I'm a Maury fan in general. I do think that it's interesting how, because of the Maury Philadelphia reputations, I, I think that people are assuming that this is going to be more of like a, a tumultuous or groundbreaking tenure than it probably will be. Um, I, I don't. I don't see Maury wanting to make a big swing for a new star because he already has two. Um, I, I don't see Houston wanting to make a James Harden for Ben Simmons swap or anything like that. If any, if anything, because they'd be afraid to trade with Maury given how well he's done on that front in the past. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see anything like the the Sam Hinkie complete teardown in Philadelphia, even though he was originally a Maury disciple, uh, just because this team already has so much in place. So I, I feel like we're instead going to see smarter moves made around the periphery to support the pieces that are already in place in Philadelphia, which isn't as exciting as people might expect from that Maury Philadelphia combination. But the starting point is already a pretty lofty one. Yeah. There's definitely, I, I think people are simultaneously overselling the likelihood that he does something seismic with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, but also underselling it a little bit. I agree with you that he's going to try and tinker with the surrounding pieces first and foremost. But if we, people have talked about his patience. This dude has made 77 trades over the last however many years. I think it was his tenure in Houston, which was the most in the league. If it's midseason and it's not working out, I don't think he'll hesitate to 
pull off something that's major and more wholesale where maybe you're looking at moving one of Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. And so I at once think that they are absolutely going to begin the season there. I think there's actually less of a guarantee that one of them finishes the season there. Maybe you could say there's more of a guarantee because you trust Maury to sort of figure it out and put the right pieces around them. But the way he likes to play, I, I don't think it needs to be as drastic as it was in Houston. Like, he doesn't need to take a zillion threes every single game. He he prefers threes over mid-rangers, and that might be the bigger thing, is that he wants shots at the rim, layups, free throws, and threes just over mid-rangers. Cutting out those mid-range jumpers are going to be easy from Philly's diet. Um, ben Simmons is great at getting to the rim. Where you start running into problems is, you know, forget about Ben Simmons' shooting because you at least have Joel Embiid who will spot up from the three-point line, and then they just went through this with Russell Westbrook. Like, he showed that he's willing to adjust. Um, can you get Ben Simmons to have any sort of three-point volume? But also the foul shooting with ben, Shim- ben Simmons is not a strength of his, and so that might create some issues. And so there's definitely a level of concern there, but, like, this team is still going to be, at least until the trade deadline in my mind, built around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and the question is going to be about how you can optimize the talent around them, which leads which leads into the larger discussion or the other discussion of what happens with Al Horford, Tobias Harris, even Josh Richardson on an expiring contract. As you mentioned, you say that Maury's not going to be looking to bring in another star. I would put it he's not going to be looking to bring in an alternative star right off the bat. He wants stars. And so what I think is actually more likely, I don't think they have the asset sway to pull off a Bradley Beal type trade if you're not including Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid. But he's not... To me, this is just speculation, won't hesitate to trade distant first rounders. Like remember remember the report where he was going to give up four for Jimmy Butler? And you have to weigh the value of those because if you're getting a star, you're you're theoretically going to be really good and those first aren't worth as much. But I think it's far more likely now that he includes the sweeteners necessary, the number of them, to get off of a Tobias Harris or a Al Horford. That was the next point I was gonna make, specifically with Horford. I have I have a trouble, I have a tough time seeing him moving. Tobias Harris or Josh Richardson because they do fit better around the existing pieces in a theoretical sense. Like, you know, Tobias Harris's initial tenure with Philadelphia has been a little bit rocky, but there have been moments where it seemed like he really can fit there. And I would expect Maury to try to make that work. But the, the other thing I think we need to dispel a little bit is the idea that he was just a layups and threes general manager, president of basketball operations, whatever the front office role may be. I, I, I've always, I always got the sense that that was more about him maximizing the central star of his system. You know, that, that that's what worked best for James Harden. And as much as he does appreciate those shots over the alternatives, which are less efficient, that he is not just like always going to cater to that analytical strategy so much as build the right strategy around his pieces. So that's why, like, I think, you know, not to, not to call anyone out too explicitly, but like when Kirk Goldsberry initially reacted to this news by tweeting out a link to Ben Simmons's shot chart and questioning the fit essentially like, yeah, Simmons doesn't shoot threes. He's also really good at generating three pointers for other players. So between his ability to get to the rim and create for others like that's what I would expect Maury to try to maximize rather than trying to to shoehorn his roster into his 
idealistic system. You know, it's it's always the mark of a good general manager, a good coach, when you're able to blend together your own desires with the personnel at your disposal, rather than force fitting the personnel into a desired scheme. I think Rick Carlisle and Greg Popovich are probably the two absolute masters at doing that. And it's why we see them consistently get the most out of these fringe roster players and cast offs from other teams. And in a sense, like I, that's what I expect Maury to be able to do as a general manager with resources at his disposal is to use those same kind of principles we saw established in Houston, but also fit them to the roster at his disposal. And what's sort of interesting too is I think the question has come up that who is more likely to be traded, Al Horford or Tobias Harris? And the reflexive answer has been Al Horford just because his contract is shorter. He's He has three years and $81 million left, only $69 million of which is guaranteed. So you can look at it as a two-year $69 million commitment. And then Tobias Harris has four years and 147.3, which is just, I'm, I'm glad he got his money. I am pro players getting paid as much as they can. That's a tough contract to move. But also, because it's so tough to move, it's just like, can you trade Tobias Harris as part of a net positive deal? Where the way I'm thinking about it is one of the deals that I thought is like, you know, what if Orlando just really wanted a scoring wing? Even if you're you're not including sweeteners to get, let's say, a package built around Evan Fournier and Terrence Ross, or Terrence Ross and Aaron Gordon. Because at that point, what you're really doing, instead of maybe upgrading the talent or the fit around you, is you're just shaving dollars off your long-term salary bill. And that's not something fans should celebrate, number one. And two, it's not going to result in cap space for this team they could use in free agency because they have such lofty contracts elsewhere. And you already touched on this. Tobias Harris is a good fit in Philly. It's just the player that they need. He's not Jimmy Butler. He's not going to put a ton of pressure on the rim. He's more of like a you know that third creator, if like a spot ball handler, more so than an actual creator. And maybe if Philly's w- willing to run more pick and rolls in the Daryl Morey era, like that might help his value. But the fit is just cleaner than it is for Al Horford, and so you combine that with the financial commitment, and it's easier to just envision them turning Al Horford plus picks, whether it's Thibel, like Al Horford plus, as Zach Lowe has been saying, stuff into someone who demonstrably helps their roster because Al Horford is such an awkward fit there. My biggest concern with this move is potential clashing between Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey, just because Morey is one of the most pronounced proponents of analytics in the NBA today, and Doc Rivers has more questions about those, to put it nicely. Um, I, I just... They they have a relationship as as Adrian Wojnarowski reported. They have history together, but I, I just I I wonder if there are going to be any head clashing incidents there, just because they do have such different philosophies. We have seen reports about how Doc Rivers um, was let go from the Clippers because he would ignore the analytics staff. Um, he didn't enjoy the the trends towards the, uh, relying on the numbers. Um, And that's definitely more of a Maury principle. So that relationship is definitely going to be something to monitor. For sure. And I think anytime you bring in a top basketball executive who didn't hire the current head coach, it's, it's something that's worth looking at. I guess, aside from Woj saying they have that working relationship from Boston, what probably helps is that the Rockets were looking at Doc Rivers as head coach before Daryl Morey left. Now, I don't know how much it matters that Daryl Morey was telling candidates he might not be there. And so you could just look at that as like, well, that doesn't really matter. But maybe that helps. Just the fact that they had spoken already, I would assume, about the the job with the Rockets. And look, I don't think it seems like 
the Sixers, you know, team governors are going to be willing to spend because they went out there and got Maury. And look, the willingness to spend is probably the biggest market inefficiency right now because other teams won't be on on the heels of this coronavirus pandemic and then the impact on the league revenue, which for this season only dropped by 10%. I thought that was shockingly low overall, but they're definitely going to be more concerned about next season where I think you have to deal with a prospect where most of the markets, if not many, may not have fans all year. Like that seems like it's a legitimate possibility. So if you're willing to spend, I wouldn't put it past this team to, if it doesn't work out after a year, Doc Rivers is gone and they're syncing up with a new coach who's Daryl Morey's choice. That's something I think you absolutely have to wait, knowing he didn't pick the coach that's in place. And also, you you would think that they talked to him about that and said, like, is this, would you keep that, like, is Doc a fit for you long term? Because maybe he's taking the mindset of, well, I'll just come in and I'll figure it out later. But he knew Doc Rivers was there before he took this job. And so that just coupled with the fact that the Rockets were looking at Doc Rivers probably helps that a little bit. But as you were talking about with the reports where Doc wasn't necessarily taking into account what uh, the analytics team for the Clippers was saying. That certainly could matter, but it's also like, that's clearly not going to fly in Philadelphia. Like that with Maury at the helm, like it's just, that's just not going to work. Yeah. So before we wrap up this segment, I want to ask you if you can have one word or phrase to sum up the Maury hiring, because it is so complicated and, and there are so many different ways to react to it. What would it be? And to buy you a little time, I'll, I'll tell you that mine would be optimism-inducing. I thought you said one word. That's two. It's hyphenated. It's one word. No, that doesn't count. Come up with another one. I also said word or phrase. <laughs> um, I would say, I would say aggressive might be the word that I'm that I'm coming at. Just because you look at um what they had just done, because it's a little confusing. It's it's like it's. Everything. It's bold. It's confusing. It's no doubt expensive. Um, it is certainly optimism inducing. Like if you're a Sixers fan, you have to be more hopeful that whatever happens, Daryl Morey is going to prioritize fit a little bit better than what was at least happening in Philly. Because I can't stress this enough. Like shooting and ball handling is what you need around Ben Simmons and Al Horford. They went the completely opposite direction. It wasn't like this slight detour, slight pivot. It was the antithesis of how they needed to build this team. And I wasn't among the people that killed the Al Horford um, signing, and I'm not even saying that I was in support of it. It was more this morbid curiosity where it's like, well, you could see it working, but it seemed like their main concern was navigating the minutes without Joel Embiid, in which case they're paying close to nine figures for a second string center is what it felt like, even though he was starting. So there was a morbid curiosity where I thought it might work. And the fact that it didn't, though, like you could, with Jimmy Butler leaving, J.J. Redick leaving, Like, those are the two players you needed most. So they're in this weird spot. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. And I know you said you wanted to wrap this up, but I actually have a couple trades I'd like to throw out with you to see like the level of sweeteners that it would take to pull something like this off. Nothing about that is in any way surprising. <laughs> why? Why? It's like you think that I love fake trades or something like that. I, I don't know where I would have gotten that impression. So I'll start with the most popular one. I'm more so going to ask you like what sweeteners you think it takes to get these things done. And it's the Buddy Heald to Philadelphia for Al Horford. What needs to be attached to make that work? So you can look at Horford's deal. Let's just say it's three years, $81 million, knowing that it could be two years, 69 I think the one thing that would help the Sixers in this case is that Buddy Heald's contract like isn't great itself. Like I don't know that you get Buddy Heald on his I think he's four years and guaranteed $94 million has the potential to go up to 112 or something around there, 106. That's not a great contract, but I still think you probably need to include a first round pick and Thibel or another first round pick to get that done. See, I, I think it might be even less than that just because of where Heald stands with the Sacramento organization right now. We had the reports earlier this offseason that he wasn't even talking to head coach Luke Walton, which is troubling. We know how disgruntled he was after he was moved to the bench and the team experienced success after that. Uh, knowing that they're going to have to pay De'Aaron Fox a mega extension and that they are aggressively pursuing a re-signing of Bogdan Bogdanovich. The money is going to be tight for Sacramento, um, but given their 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 need for a big man who they can rely on to some extent, at least, like I, I feel like that's more feasible than we originally thought, especially with Maury in place now, where he might be willing to to make the offer of Horford and one first round pick and see if they bite on that, and they might. Like, I don't know that you need to get too aggressive beyond that, just given where healed stands with the organization. I actually think it would take more because I'm just, unless Monty McNair is going to do his, his guy down more a favor here, uh, but it's, it's just so unknowable. I have another one for you though. And I'm actually surprised this one hasn't been floated out more since the bulls hired Billy Donovan, who coached Al Horford at Florida, Otto Porter, who's making, he has a $28.5 million player option. He's going to pick that up for Al Horford, Matisse Seibel and number 17. Now, here's my thinking. Because the Horford contract can theoretically go three years, like maybe that seems too long, but you have Wendell Carter Jr. who was billed as mini Al Horford, and maybe the concern is can you start Wendell Carter Jr. over Al Horford? I don't think that you could play them together at least for long stretches, but who better to mentor mini Al Horford than actual Al Horford. Well, and the good news is that Wendell Carter Jr. will only be available for half of the season anyway, so you don't have that problem for much of the year. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> I feel like that that does seem pretty fair right off the bat to me, unless Chicago is still really high on Otto Porter Jr., which is a possibility because they entered this past season harboring, in their minds, legitimate playoff aspirations, and then when everyone got hurt, Porter included – that wasn't able to even become close to reality. But if they if they look at him and still see the the do everything kind of fringe star that they expected when they originally acquired him, then it could take significantly more. And it's just it's it's tough to know where his value lies with that organization, especially given the front office changes that they've also made. Because as as you mentioned with the front offices and hiring 
and, and coaches that were hired by the previous regime. Like that's this situation in a nutshell as well, just with a player instead of a coach. So without having any insight into what Chicago still thinks of him, it's tough, but it seems like a fair initial proposal. Also, I don't know why I keep saying number 17. They have number 21. I think because I was writing about the Timberwolves earlier, that number 17 is sort of ingrained into my head. So it would be number it would be number 21. Okay, so this, what I think is probably the ideal trade partner for the Sixers is a team that might be looking to rebuild but wants to straddle two lines. And I can think of no better team than the San Antonio Spurs for this. If you went Al Horford, let's say the 2022nd, from the 2021 second from New York, the 2020 second from New York, number 21, and Thibel for Patty Mills and Rudy Gay. I'm sorry. I just I need a minute here to wrap my head around the idea of DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Al Horford sharing a court in 2020 and 2021. Because that's so, just... <laughs> I view DeMar DeRozan for the Spurs as like a sunk cost at this point. And even... Not a sunk cost, but like he and Aldridge are on expiring deals. I just don't view them as part of the long term. And I, I think you can get away with playing Horford and Aldridge together because they both shoot threes. And I don't think it's going to be any better than the Embiid-Horford pairing. But if you're the Spurs and you really want to grind down the pace, I think there's a pathway to doing it. I wouldn't suggest for long periods of time. But look, Jakob Pertl's up for a new deal. Maybe you don't want to pay him you know, 12 to $15 million a year if that's what his market ends up being. And you, you kind of want to rebuild. But like you said, you have DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge. And I, I think those contracts are so massive they're both Aldridge's 24 million. DeMar DeRozan's making about the same as Horford, 27.7 million. Like those are just hard expirings to move. And so maybe you could give DeMar DeRozan to Philly. They just won't care about the theoretical fit with Ben Simmons there, but you're, I don't think you're the sweeteners you're going to get will be as profuse in that, in that scenario. So it's two seconds, both from the Knicks. So they're one of them is already a, a higher end second that that comes at uh, it's number 38 in this year's draft. Next year's Knicks second, the number 21 pick, or you can even go maybe with Philly's pick next year if you get that out of them, plus Thibault and then Al Horford for Patty Mills and Rudy Gay. I guess the concern there for Philly is that seems more like those players fit, but that seems more like a rental because how many years are you going to give Rudy Gay and, and Patty Mills? So like throw the seconds out of there. Are you doing, or throw one of the first, like is that enough of a two seconds and Thibault or a first plus Horford for those two players? Yeah, I think it's fair value. But you know, like, you know, when a star player is clearly hanging on too long, and it's just like, it's a little sad to watch, because they're such a diminished version of themselves. And you like, you wish that they had hung it up a little bit earlier, so that this wasn't the lasting image in your mind. I just I don't want the Spurs to be the franchise equivalent of that where they're so desperate to hang on the periphery of the playoff chase and and stick on that mediocrity treadmill that we end up seeing Al Horford, LaMarcus Aldridge, and DeMar DeRozan playing together because that does not sound like an enjoyable experience for anyone involved. Uh, I, I'm kind of with you. A team that I would watch for Al Horford, and I'm saying if Giannis signs his Supermax and that takes 2021 free agency off the table, I could see Toronto being opportunistic and thinking, we won't always play him with Pascal Siakam, but if they're going to give us enough assets to take off his money, that ends up being more of a straight salary dump, though, unless you're giving up Lowry in the conversation. And then that's where things get really interesting. What would the Sixers be willing to pay to get off Al Horford's money in exchange for Lowry's expiring deal? I'm also wondering... I would love that move. I would uh, love it. I mean, we just saw what they could do with Marcus Gasol in a diminished role and maximizing his talents. And I, I think Al Horford has more left in the tank than Gasol did when he went to Toronto. And I would love to see what Nick Nurse could do with him. 
Yeah, so that would be sort of like straddling two lines. I don't if you're not giving up Kyle Lowry in that deal, I don't know necessarily what Toronto has because then it's just a cap relief deal where it's like I guess Norman Powell and stuff is cool. Um, Toronto might have cap space at that point if Van Fleet and Ibaka leave. Those are things to consider as well. The last thing I'll ask you on this front is I came up with a trade that landed Ben Simmons in Minnesota, Bradley Beal in Philadelphia, and then just a whole bunch of other stuff in Washington. And I think it was actually a fair deal. That doesn't feel like it's going to happen like imminently where, one, the Wizards might not want to move Beal, but I don't think they're at the point where they want to move Ben Simmons. I'm wondering, can you? what would it take if you dangled Horford and how much stuff to get the Wizards to think about moving Bradley Beal for that package? Is it like Horford and Thibel and four first round picks? Like something ridiculous like that? If, if not more. Okay. So because it's just, if, if, if the Wizards are doing that, they're essentially admitting that they have no intention of competing until the Horford and John Wall contracts are off their books. And it, it, it feels impossible to ask any NBA franchise, especially in a weird revenue cycle right now, to absolutely unquestionably tank their prospects of being even remotely competitive for three plus years. I tend to agree with you. I just want to throw it because that's something that Maury will do is he will unload every single clip. Oh, absolutely. That, but I don't, I ultimately don't think even if it was Tobias Harris, who's younger, um, I'll run this three teamer by you and our listeners to see what you thought of it. Minnesota gets Ben Simmons, Philadelphia gets Bradley Beal and number 17. This is where number 17 was actually coming from. Washington gets Jared Culver, James Johnson's expiring deal, Josh Okoge, Jared Vanderbilt, love him, by the way, the number one pick, and Minnesota's 2023 first-round pick, unprotected, unprotected, conditional upon their 2021 obligation to Golden State, which is a, a pick that's top three protected. If not, you have to wait till 2024 for that pick to convey. It's a lot to wrap my head around, so I'm glad that you've shown this one to me before. Um <laughs> I think, I think the two fair, questions... but it relies on two teams being willing to trade stars that I don't think they're willing to trade yet. Um, well, I actually think the bigger question is, for the Sixers, is Bradley Beal number 17 enough for Ben Simmons because you have him under contract for five years at this point? Uh, and then the other question would be, let's assume that the Wizards are open to moving Beal, which I think they could be swayed to at this point. Is Culver... Okogi, uh, Josh Okoji, uh, Jared Vanderbilt, number one, and then that unprotected pick enough? I don't... I honestly don't know. I think it's at least a conversation start. Maybe if they love one of the prospects in this draft? Uh, Maybe. Um, Let's move on from this, though. Those are our thoughts there. Unless you have any Tobias Harris trade destinations. The only one I could really come up with was, like, maybe Atlanta because they want to win so badly. But I feel like if they were to overpay someone like that, they'd prefer someone who's just really good at defense. That's where my head went first, where Atlanta does seem like a good landing spot. I wouldn't be surprised if Atlanta went all in on pursuing like a Davis Bertans or even a Danilo Gallinari this offseason. So like trying to fill that that spot with someone like Harris would make sense. But I just I still want to see what he can do in a Maury run organization just because it does seem like such a great fit. And the other thing is, is I mentioned this before, that becomes a salary dump where it's let's just say you're trading Tobias Harris into their cap space and Dwayne Dedman. They're sending back as well. Like that's not helping your your team. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. 
Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Before we get to the Mellow Ball, what are your thoughts on the, the Steven Silas hire, who very everywhere he's been, uh, just glowing reviews throughout the league, was in Charlotte for a long time, was the interim head coach there for a little bit when Steve Clifford needed time away from the team, with Dallas the past two seasons, and he was among the architects of their offense. We know that Rick Carlisle is you know, the, the, the final say voice there, the primary voice there, but to be a part of an offense that was so efficient this season, one of the best by the numbers of, of all time, that's certainly encouraging. I'm just wondering, like, what does it say? I don't, we, you've never heard anything that James Harden and Russell Westbrook are difficult to coach, but like, is it, you're throwing in this first time head coach. Does that make this situation any more combustible? Does it say anything about Houston's willingness to spend in general? Because you have to imagine that Silas was cheaper than Van Gundy, or is that just a terrible fit with Van Gundy and uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden? But if it does say something that they wanted a cheaper coach, that makes it so much less likely to me that they end up using their mid-level exception this year, in which case the team is not going to be able to get appreciably better. I think we don't know anything about Steven Silas as a head coach long-term. Like, I think he's an intriguing option, and if they really did this as an off-the-beaten-path hire that they think is going to be ingenious, like, more power to them. But if this ended up being like they went with the more, I'll say the cheaper name, I'm just curious what that infers about their immediate future and then how long before it becomes a situation where James Harden starts thinking, do I still want to be here? Whenever Tillman Fertitta is involved, my immediate inclination is to think that cost does matter and that they are chasing the cheaper options at the expense of the better ones. But in this particular case, I don't really want to say that because I think that's a discredit to Steven Silas and his resume, which is really impressive. I mean, he has nothing but good reviews from the people that he's worked with. He has experience coaching Luka Doncic, Kemba Walker, Stephen Curry, which should work nicely in a Houston offense that completely revolves around James Harden and Russell Westbrook, who, as as we might as we might know, are are both guards. Um, so just the fact that he is is viewed as this offensive mastermind. And it's not just based on reputation. It's based on actual results. The Dallas Mavericks offense that you mentioned that literally has the best offensive rating in the history of the NBA. Um, and that all of these elite offenses are revolving around ball dominant guards. That bodes well. Um, I don't know much about him beyond that. So it would be irresponsible speculation from my part. But I do always like, and I, I've said this multiple times on this on this podcast, not this specific one, but in other episodes, I'm always a fan of giving non-retreads opportunities, whether it's former players or whether it's assistant coaches who haven't been able to sit in that lead chair. Rather than going with someone like Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson or any of the other names who have been around the block a few times, like good on them for for making this kind of hire, especially when the franchise does feel like it's at a crossroads. I think if anything, that that speaks to the confidence that they have in him. I don't want to sound like I was discrediting Silas in any way. And the three candidates that came down to John Lucas, Jeff Angani, and Silas, he would have been my pick, unless you really value like the pre-existing relationship that John Lucas has with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. But I think you make this higher with Silas. Um, I think it's the bigger swing, which is why I would uh, prefer him over Lucas. But then also, I don't think you make this I guess the expectation would be, can you pay Lucas enough to stick around anyway? Because he's so important to that dynamic. And so I'm with you on everything you said there. I will say that 
the James Harden stuff becomes interesting if they underachieve this season. And it's, you know, maybe if they're, you know, make it deeper in the playoffs or they put up a real fight in the second round, everything's fine. But like if, and as we mentioned, there's the, the level of unknownness because Russell Westbrook was playing out of his mind. Then the pandemic hit, then he got coronavirus. And you have to believe that was at least responsible in part for his play inside the Disney bubble. So there's still a lot we don't know about this team and they should still be really good because James Harden is ridiculously good. However, if we're talking about another first round exit, if there's evidence that they won't spend to bring even their just mid-level in free agency, because again, one of the biggest advantages you have this offseason to be is a willingness to spend your mid-level exceptions, since I think so teams are going to be hesitant to do it. If it gets into that scenario, I think we start hearing James Harden, either he's disgruntled, because I do think it would ultimately be him that dissolves this relationship, by next offseason, if not by the trade deadline. And I would say the trade deadline is probably a little bit less likely Look, if there's just evidence that they're underachieving that, it, it would not surprise me if, if that's when we start to hear the rumblings. The the only real trepidation that I have on the Silas front is the history of the father-son coaching duos is not great. Um, and, and credit to ESPN and, and Adrian Wojnarowski for putting this together. But he is the fifth son of an NBA head coach to get a head coaching job. The previous four, J.B. Bickerstaff, Bernie Bickerstaff's son, had a, a losing record with the Memphis Grizzlies and the, Cle- and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, Eric Musselman, the son of Bill Musselman, uh, coached the Golden State Warriors and the Sacramento Kings for one year. He has a losing record. Ryan Saunders, the son of Flip Saunders, losing record with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And the one exception is Mike Malone, the uh, the son of Brendan Malone, who has done very well with the Denver Nuggets. So obviously a very small sample here, but you know, if if nepotism is more in play than competency, you know, then there's a potential issue. But we have no indications to believe that that's going to be the case here. And Ryan Saunders more is interesting than anything else. And Ryan Saunders specifically is so early into his tenure with the Timberwolves right. that uh, he did not inherit a great situation. No, he did not. All right. So let's talk about this LaMelo Ball stuff. This came from you sent it to me. So hat tip to you. Rick Bonnell of the Charlotte Observer was on 102.5 FM WFNZ in Charlotte. This transcription comes from uh, Lonzo, Lonzo Wires, Jacob Rude. And here's what Bonnell had to say about LaMelo Ball. Here's what I'm hearing from the league at large. LaMelo Ball is not performing very well at job interviews. I've heard that from multiple sources. He's not improving his perception via job interview. There are people drafting later in the top 10 who are not preparing for the possibility of Ball still being around. And I'm not saying that he will be a top three pick. I'm saying that I know for a fact that there are teams later in the top 10 who are doing more research on him because they no longer think it's a given. He will. Two things stand out to me from this. I don't know what job interview... Sorry, sorry. I don't know what job interview means here. Is it like conversations or are you looking at more film? Is it... uh, Are even workouts taking place right now? I think they're allowed to. I can't remember. So So many things have happened. And then I will say this is coming from Rick Bonnell, who's a reputable reporter, but he covers the Hornets who have the number three pick in a draft where there's a consensus top three prospects. In essence, they are going to be left without a move with whoever Golden State and Minnesota do not take. And so if you have interest in LaMelo Ball at number three, what better way than to throw something like this out there? I do think, though, there could be some validity to it because he is considered this boomer bust prospect. There are... Um, friend of the pod and NBA draft guru Adam Spinella writes over at the Celtics blog has him number 15 on his big board, which is incredibly low relative to the field for LaMelo Ball. We obviously don't know whether he's going to be good or not, but this seems to be in line with at least the the device of nature of him as a prospect. You could also say that about every single other prospect in this draft. And so I just want to note the 
the person who's relaying this is covering a team in a situation where if they want LaMelo Ball and can't or are unwilling to move up, it would be a good idea to maybe throw out some reports or some leaks that he is going to drop in the draft or isn't worth a top three pick. Look, this this feels like one of the smokescreeniest smokescreens that ever smokescreened for the the reasons that you mentioned. And also just like, what job interviews are we talking about here? There isn't an on-court portion. And I'd like to read from ESPN's Jonathan Giveney. So this is about the meeting that LaMelo Ball had with the Minnesota Timberwolves on Tuesday of this week. The meeting conducted in Southern California consisted of an interview and did not feature any basketball activity. It was, att- it was attended by blah, 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 blah. This was the first meeting Ball had conducted. He is tentatively scheduled to interview with the Golden State Warriors early next week. They have the number two pick in the NBA draft. The expectation is that Ball also will interview with the Charlotte Hornets and Chicago Bulls, who pick third and fourth. So what job interviews is this that he's not performing particularly well in? Like we, we know we know who he is. Like he's been so, so profiled so many times by so many different writers because he's been this phenomenon for years, playing abroad at such a young age, leaving high school to go play professionally. Like I don't know how much new stuff we're gonna be learning at this stage especially with no on-court work. So like this this to me just absolutely screams smokescreen. I'm I'm with you there. So and again, like that as as you mentioned, Rick Rick is a fantastic reporter and it is in no way discrediting he the reporting he he's doing. Report this is just what he's being said. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, so it's Look, if he drops outside the top three, then look more power Rick Bottle who was on top of this from the start. Really quickly, the last thing we want to mention is the Jazz were sold. The Miller family sold them to Ryan Smith, the founder of Qualtrics, who, which he believe he sold it for eight billion dollars when he did sell. That they were, he purchased the Jazz for one point six plus billion, which is I think that's a I think that's what Forbes had them evaluated around, and to get that money, uh, as the Miller family amid the pandemic when the league is so concerned with revenue, I think it does bode well for the future of the league. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this, and I'll say my one straight thought is. Uh, this was mentioned on the, the Hoop Collective podcast with ESPN, is like these new younger owners, um, so not Tillman Fertitta, but they come in, they don't want to be coming in with a whimper. Like they're here to spend. And so now all of a sudden I'm wondering if like, is there a path to the Jazz even for one season paying the tax? Because they have an opportunity to re-sign Jordan Clarkson and use their full non-taxpayers mid-level, which would take them into the tax probably. But if you're adding on top of the team you already have, you throw in a healthy boy on Bogdanovich, what Donovan Mitchell did during the playoffs, you're all of a sudden kind of like a lion in the West, where now you've been this darling, everyone finds you interesting, you're um, you know, a basketball nerd, like very, names you as a fringe contender or a dark horse, but you become like a legitimate lion if you're willing to spend that because of the, the caliber of player I imagine you'll be able to get for the non-taxpayers mid-level exception. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with you wholeheartedly where I, I do think that you know the, the younger owners want to come in and immediately make a splash and we should see Utah trying to do something to solidify its place among the Western Conference elites rather than speculating about whether the Rudy Gobert Donovan Mitchell relationship is going to work and if one of those pieces has to be moved um, I was also really glad to see that this is not a Clay Bennett situation where somebody is buying a franchise with the intent of moving it to a different location, that this sale was predicated on the belief and promise that the Jazz were going to remain in Utah. 
Now I would just like to see them abandon the Utah Jazz nickname because it's dumb and it doesn't make any sense and they should give it back to the New Orleans Pelicans so they can become the New Orleans Jazz and we can just move from there. That's that's certainly a take. The thing that I'm actually more interested to see, um, I agree with you. The Miller family is credited with keeping the Jazz in Utah. And so to sell it to a Utah native, like that absolutely matters. He's a BYU alum and so he's clearly vested in in that community. I want to see what happens with the Rudy Gobert extension. I'm, I would assume that Ryan Smith is going to pony up where it's necessary. I'm just curious where that number lands, whether it's less likely that they sign him to an extension because maybe they want to take a bigger swing in 2021. I don't think it's less likely that he, that uh, Ryan Smith doesn't want like the new regime. I think they'll be willing to pay for talent is my guess. I'm just curious to see what this means for Rudy Gobert's contract situation because I – I have zero feel for it, is my point. I don't know if this makes it more likely, less likely that he gets one this summer. I don't know if it makes it more likely that he gets more than we thought, less than we thought. I honestly have zero idea. And so I'm wondering if there will be any impact there. But with that, as Adam's just nodding his head to me, so I think he agrees. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but something will happen. Uh, That does it for us on this portion of the podcast. Please stay tuned. We're going to be talking to Sabrina Merchant from SB Nation about the Clippers. Go really deep on there. And remember to follow her on Twitter at SabrinaJM. That's at S-A-B-R-E-E-N-A-J-M. Stay tuned. Sabrina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's nice to speak with you uh, virtually as opposed to just in your DMs. You helped me out. I asked you about a... Uh, piece that I was doing on franchise moments like earlier in the year and you were kind enough to help me out with with that but it's good to actually talk to you I guess it's called face-to-face because we're Skype so that's as close to -to face-to-face as anyone's getting this time anyway yeah it's it's all I'm comfortable with I'll tell you that (laughs) Um, I'm I'm totally there with you I did we are going to talk extensively about the Clippers but I wanted you're the first guest that we've actually had on since the NBA shifted its start date to December 22nd and aside from myself my co-host I'm just curious to see like how you feel about a start date that soon, whether you think it's realistic, knowing that the players are also already pushing back against that. Was this just like a a ploy by the owners where it's like, okay, if we throw out December 22nd, they'll counter with MLK Day and that's fine, as opposed to like this leaking into February or March or something? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. Uh, I love Christmas basketball. It's my favorite thing. Uh, so having the NBA play on December 25th is, I'm all for it all the time, no matter what the situations are that lead to it. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm kind of the belief that the NBA just needs to get back on its normal calendar. So you just kind of suck it up for one year and, uh, let the guys play in the Olympics in 2021. And then we're back to normal, you know, for the 21, 22 season, but the, the fight back from the players, you know, like Michelle Roberts obviously had a lot of comments, uh, put out in public the last couple of days. Uh, it makes me think that they're trying to get some, other concessions, not so much start date, but like maybe less money in escrow, something like that uh, as a, you know, negotiating tactics so that they can still start in December, but the players get some sweetener out of that. Yeah, there's uh, all that stuff that goes into it. Like I was surprised that the NBA only like the revenue was down 10% for this past season. I thought it would yeah, have been shockingly good, right? Right. And I think now it's like, how do you justify keeping 30 to 40% of the player's salary in escrow next season? Um, when mm-hmm. you're only down 10%, like they, I would say, well, let's say like 25% of the season was screwed this year. And like, you only like ended up being down 10. That's, that was profit too. I want to stress that. Like that was revenue. They were down 10% year over I think they were down 5% year over year and 10% from like the projections or whatever it was. Um, so I'm, I think that might be a more contentious issue than the actual start date, but I'm with you. 
I'm torn between I love Christmas basketball, but then I'm also like, you know, for the player uh, for the players and teams that weren't in the bubble, they'll probably want to get going. But like LeBron is definitely taking like a month off. Like maybe he comes back and plays Christmas and then we don't see him again until February or something. I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. Um, but I think we would see a lot more load management like throughout the year with maybe players we're not used to seeing it. Like maybe even a James Harden is not trying to play in all 72 games or whatever it ends up being. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I am curious if that's the actual start date. I think it will be because Christmas is so important, but I think the teams, and rightfully so, are going to have to make other concessions uh, elsewhere. Like, as you would mention at the top with the escrow, I'd assume the players are looking for something along those lines. But I did bring you on to pester you about the Clippers. And so they are, when I do these look-aheads, I really like to get into like the nitty-gritty basketball stuff, but there are the teams where you have to talk about the low-hanging fruit, and the Clippers are are one of those teams where it's like all these issues like don't necessarily seem like nitty gritty basketball. They're all like, there's the basic questions about free agency. Like what would they do with the roster? But I'm just curious how you feel. Like, let's start with the Ty Lue hire. Like, how did you feel about that? Or the fact that this team being the most talented team on, on paper, I would say in the league, even though they underachieved, how did you feel? Were you shocked at all that they made the coaching change at all? Like just pivoting away from doc rivers after year one. Yeah, so Doc Rivers has been in LA for some time now. I think that was his seventh season with the Clippers. Yeah, seventh season with the Clippers. Uh, made the playoffs six times, three Western Conference semifinals appearances, and obviously no trips to the Western Conference Finals because the Clippers have never yet been to the Conference Finals, which, again, we all thought was going to end this year. We're going to get that grand Lakers-Clippers, you know, inter-hallway series, which obviously would have had to happen in Orlando, but whatever. Um the minute the season ended, I thought, okay, this is not a good time to be a Doc Rivers. Like I was, when um, uh, I, I said this on my own past, my own podcast back when during the Dallas series, when people's names were being floated for all the open head coaching jobs, and I kept thinking, like maybe the reason Ty Lue's name isn't being floated around is because he's waiting for this job. And like, mind you, the Clippers were beating Dallas at that point, but not looking terribly impressive while they were doing it. And it just sort of seemed like maybe this is the time when they decide to move on from Doc and like. I was just waiting for a really good job to open up. And the way they played in that Denver series, I thought it was the right decision to let go of Doc because it just showed a complete lack of flexibility uh, in terms of the way he handled his rotations. And the fact that they were complaining about the players conditioning in the bubble, like that guys had to, you know, come out after three or four minutes stints is just a really bad look for the staff. <laughs> you know, that they couldn't get those guys on the same page. So to me, it seemed like, a foregone conclusion that Doc would have to be out. The one thing that sort of gave me a little pause about it was because Doc has been such a good uh, spokesperson for the Clippers. You know, you saw it back during the Donald Sterling fiasco, how Doc, you know, took ownership of, the, not ownership per se, but like he was the the face of the Clippers in that moment. And he spoke for the players and he spoke for the organization. And he did a really great job of speaking on behalf of the players during the bubble too. You know, when he made those comments about the Jacob Blake shooting and how, you know, the, the fear that black people feel in America. And I thought it was such a powerful moment. And I mean, I think even Joe Biden used Doc Rivers' words in a speech that he made in Gettysburg. Like, that's not an, a small thing, right? right like, right. he is, he's an incredible face of this franchise and spokesperson for the league. And I thought that might be the thing that kept him with the Clippers. But, you know, the Clippers are not sentimental. They're just not at all. They traded Blake Griffin after giving him this, like, whole spiel about his jersey <laughs> retiring. And I feel like that doesn't uh, get talked about enough. Like, at least nationally. <laughs> it really does not, right? So, uh, <laughs> they put together a mock retirement ceremony for the guy, and then six months earlier, they're like, all right, you know, Peace. I guess it's out now. <laughs> uh, 
So I, from a basketball perspective, I totally get the firing of Doc Rivers or mutual parting, whatever happened. Um, I think Ty Lue was absolutely the right fit to take this job because, you know, he's comfortable with that high pressure situation. He walked into arguably a much tougher situation in Cleveland. Uh, he knows how to handle superstar egos. I think one thing that doesn't get talked about with Ty enough is that he's, he was just super creative on those Cleveland teams. Like obviously you have LeBron and that makes things easier to work with, but like Kawhi is not that much worse than LeBron, you know, like he's, no, but... he's a pretty good basketball player too. Like there's a lot. You can he's do all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think about that 2018 Cleveland run all the time because like they literally used a different closing lineup in every single one of those Eastern Conference playoff series. You know, there was just a market amount of flexibility and just adaptability that Tyloo displayed. And I think that's what the Clippers need because I, I agree with you on paper. They're super talented. They just, the pieces didn't fit together quite right, especially the way that Doc Rivers used them. So I like Lou. I think, uh, you know, having a little bit of, you know, institutional continuity where he was on the team last year. So at least he knows he has a good understanding of what worked and what didn't work. Right. Um, but at the same time, like he's not the same guy, you know, he's not doc. He's a different guy. He's bringing in a very different staff. Uh, and I think Sam Cassell is on his way out. He's joining uh, doc in Philadelphia. I haven't heard anything about Rex claiming who was their defensive coordinator this year. I assume he's not going to be coming back because there's like four other assistants who are being hired above him. So it's going to be a very different look, but like, at least you have the one guy who is there who, especially if this is a shortened season, you know, can get guys on the same page a little bit quicker than you would if it was an entirely new hire. I'm interested to see if this has ever happened before, but this is like Ty, both of Ty Lue's head coaching gigs have come after he was a highly paid lead assistant, like, and uh, almost immediately after, which is just super awkward because he spoke to David Blatt in Cleveland before he took the job because he didn't like the optics of it. And then I believe he said something along the same lines this time. I don't, I don't think that Ty Lue is like someone waiting in the shadows to take someone else's job. It's just the way the circumstances fell. That's just, yeah. that's just a bizarre note to me. I think he was the right choice too. And the, the continuity one wasn't even something I considered like, yeah, he was there this year. That's probably a big deal. Um, you mentioned like the offensive ingenuity from him specifically and with the line of creativity, that's something I'm wondering if we'll see more of, because that's one of the reasons I like him. And I think the Clippers were built to play that way more than they actually did. Uh, you know, I think Jermichael Green, if Ty Lue was the head coach, absolutely would have gotten more minutes at the five in the postseason oh, because totally. it worked so well against the Warriors last year. So I just found it. They didn't even really go to that in the regular season. But I also think, and this is where I struggle with Doc Rivers, is that I, one, don't like it when people box. And this happens a lot with um, black head coaches, that they're these culture guys. So I don't want to pigeonhole either one of them into this. But Ty Lue, with one of the first stories of him calling out LeBron in a film session in Cleveland, that feels like that's exactly what this team needs. And now that we've seen Doc oversee the end of the Lob City era where there felt like there was that awkwardness between high-profile mm-hmm. players there, and then we know midseason there was like the old regime of the Clippers, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Trez, the guys that you envision wanting to go hard 83 of 82 games out of the year, like sort of butt well, Maybe not Lou, but definitely the other two. All right, fair enough, yeah. Maybe Lou wants to be at the club 83 of the 82 games out of the year, but so you had those guys like kind of butting heads with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And so now that's just like, maybe I'm finding this odd just because now people are talking about, Oh, Philly just needs like that discipline that doc rivers is going to bring um, for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. But I'm like the circumstances under which the two, well, I guess doc didn't leave twice, but like what happened with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. And then now what happened with the Kawhi PG versus the guys from the previous seasons. I'm just like, it almost feels like, I don't want to say Doc's overrated on that front, but maybe they needed that reset where Lou's going to come in and, and he'll actually be like more hands-on. Like, I don't, is, is that like a thing? I'm just very curious because if this didn't happen again with the Lob City Clippers, 
I might not be talking about this, but it just feels like there's there's something off there with with Doc now. I I could not agree more. I I think it's really interesting because you know Doc got that reputation from being with the Celtics, right? The U one two head coach, uh, and obviously that worked out very well swimmingly in year one. You know, it all came together. They won a title. They ended up going to the finals another time, but. Uh, I struggle with how much blame to apportion to Doc versus how much to the players because, you know, Kawhi didn't get along with the culture in San Antonio. You know, like that is a, uh, you know, an unimpeachable like standard of NBA, you know, greatness. Right. And Kawhi wanted out. And now I'm not blaming Kawhi. Like obviously his, if he felt uncomfortable with his health, you know, in the hands of those doctors, like by all means get out. But the fact that he didn't fit in there makes it seem like, okay, maybe Kawhi is a little bit harder to get along with. And, you know, we, we could talk about the Lob City guys, like Chris Paul, obviously, has had, you know, his friends and not friends around the league. Uh, <laughs> it's a tricky player to work with. So, yeah, maybe Doc isn't, like, the gold standard for, you know, building a locker room culture. Maybe he's not, he shouldn't be rated that high. But I also think, like, the situations that he was presented with, the Clippers, are, like, are not super easy. You know, they're not. <laughs> yeah. The story like goes are tough. The locker room and make yeah. everything work. But something was off. Uh, I do think he take some of the blame for that, obviously, but I'm more of the belief that there just needed to be a change. He'd been here for a very long time. There was like a lot of skeletons in the closet. They weren't all related to this team, obviously, because no Clipper has been with the team for more than three years. So they don't carry the baggage from Lob City, but he carries the baggage, you know? And so I think he just needed a fresh start. I think the Clippers needed a fresh start and I'm just rooting the hell out of him in Philly because I love Doc. He's such a good guy. Like you said, the stuff where he's like the, for the face of a team, the face of the league, like absolutely positively, this feels like it might be a test of like how much discipline he could bring because Philly is, this is a whole different topic. They have emboldened their young stars. I think you could argue too much, like dating back mm-hmm. to the early days of the process. Um, so looking at this team, and also you, you brought up this point about Kawhi leaving San Antonio. We haven't heard Uncle Dennis's name at all throughout all this. And so you think if like Kawhi was like not easy to get along with, um, in LA, maybe he would be involved to some extent, but also even Toronto, it felt like he didn't really forge a connection with anyone aside from Serge Ibaka. And I think Kyle Lowry, just because to me, objectively, Kyle Lowry is one of the most lovable players in, in the NBA. So I think you're right. It's like, maybe every star has an ego. And even in San Antonio, I think that there was a report once that Kawhi wasn't happy that the Spurs didn't really like roll out the red carpet once for him in, in an all-star weekend, like where he saw LaMarcus Aldridge in Portland getting all this stuff. And then he didn't get any of it. Um, so who knows how true that is, but that's a, that's a good point I didn't consider looking at this actual roster though. I think there's, this is definitely part of the reactionary like times that we live in, but, but there's like this thing floating around in certain sectors that the Clippers need to do something drastic. That idea is absolutely bonkers, right? Like the trade Paul George stuff, I think is a farce. Like that's just, but I'm even talking like, do you need to consolidate your salaries into going after a Chris Paul? Like, it doesn't seem like you need to make that level of a move. And it would be funny to see Chris Paul come back to the Clippers after Doc left. But I'm just, like, I can't wrap my head around, like, after year one, I know your title window is finite if you're looking at Kawhi and Paul George entering free agency in 2021. But the idea that this team, because you look at it on paper, and maybe they didn't fit together on the court this season, but it seems like they fit together in general, that you need to, like, sort of bust this up in a semi-significant way. I can't wrap my head around it. I'm a hundred percent on the same page with you is that I, this is a really good team. It was the top five, you know, in offense and defense this past year, they were up three, one on Denver and then they just lost their composure. And it was just a wonderful little bubble moment from Jamal Murray and the whole crew in Denver. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are obviously flaws with the Clippers and we, 
saw these flaws in the summer of 2019 before they even took the court together. Like, they don't have a point guard. Patrick Beverly is not a point guard. He's a 3 and D guy who happens to be six feet tall, so he plays point guard. Like, he doesn't run an offense. And Kawhi can do, you know, certain creative things on offense, but, like, it's a it's a big load for him to be the team's best scorer, the team's best playmaker, the team's best defender. Like, that's a lot of things to put on one guy. And you saw him sort of just, I don't want to say crumble, but, like, it was a heavy burden to bear in that Denver series, and he wore down by the end of it. Um, so they need a point guard. They do need a point guard. I don't think that that means, you know, you have to trade away Paul George to get Chris Paul or that you have to, you know, jumble everything together and make, like, some Drew Holiday, like, godfather offer. But something has to be changed there. I mean, you there are these rumors about Rajon Rondo, you know, drawing interest from the Clippers front office, which is just objectively hilarious to me. But uh, I do think that, like, there are – there are gaps that you could see, you know, that need filling. Uh, I think that's really the only one that like would concern me for the Clippers this offseason. Like if you don't add another point guard, like maybe you think we have a fixed ceiling where we're not going to win at all. Like not having another big man, I think they can get past if you just play Zubach more. Um, or, you know, you use no, you can't, you can't do that. Clippers. You can't play Zubach more. That's, that's illegal, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> He's not allowed to play in the fourth quarter. He plays his second half stint at the start of the third quarter. And then that, just leaves 18 straight minutes for Montrose Herald. That's exactly what happens every single game. Um, but yeah, the one thing I think the Clippers do need to address, like they just need some kind of playmaker. And I don't know how you get that because they don't have a ton of cap flexibility. Um, maybe you like throw Lou Williams into a trade deal. I, you know, if you get a point card, you don't really need Lou Williams like to run the second unit. But uh, I do think that's a hole. And I, I think just the Clippers would be far more interesting if they managed to address that. It's just, it's really hard to see what they could do. I mean, if they cleared out enough of their cap space, they could do like a sign and trade for Fred Van Vliet, but like, why would Toronto do that? Um, they could like uh, just throw their full mid-level like Goran Dragic, but why would he want to leave Miami when they're going to pay him a ton more money? Um, so then you're working with like DJ Augustin level guys, which, okay, sure. He's fine. But like, that might even be a reach for them. Looking at the point on a championship team, right? Like, yes, right. Yeah. And even he might be too expensive for I don't know what this free agency market is gonna be like, but the point the point guard situation is rough. Like the It's bleak. Yeah. It's bleak. And so like DJ Augustine for the mini MLE might be like not enough. I I honestly have no idea. But that was my next question. So playmaker is the hole that they have to focus on. Because mm-hmm. what's weird about this team is I think you could say that they're the most talented on paper. You kind of talk to yourself and then needing like another wing, but also another big, and then there's the playmaker. But the playmaker is the hole that they have to zero in on this offseason. Yes. Um, are there, I know you mentioned some, but are there like actual any free agents that you think are like interesting for them? Like, are there any like lower level moves? Does, doesn't Alec Burks move the needle for them? Like, is it a matter of you need the actual passer or is it just someone else who's comfortable shooting shots off the dribble? It seems like you're saying that they need more of a floor general than anything else, which I guess I kind of thought the Rondo report was funny, but I, I guess if that's the, like the, the quality that you're looking for, he actually kind of makes sense then. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's very much the floor general, like someone who can set an offense whose first instinct is to pass and not to shoot because the Clippers don't have a single player on their team whose first instinct is to pass, just not a one. Like you look at Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Marcus Morris, Lou Williams, Reggie Jackson, who's nominally a point guard, um, every single one of them, first instinct, shoot, 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 which is, I mean, they're fine players, but like <laughs> they just need somebody who thinks about passing every once in a while. And yeah, playoff Rajon Rondo certainly makes a lot of sense on the Clippers. <laughs> 72 games of regular season, Rajon Rondo, that could get a bit tiresome. Like, I've watched Lakers all season. I get it. I know how this works. So it's just a bit of a shock when he shows up, you know, in, like, 
starts making smart decisions all of a sudden and like giving effort on the defensive end. Uh, that's the, you know, that's the the rub with Rondo because we've seen this, like it's, it's a pattern Alec for the course of several regular seasons. He just outperforms his regular season stock in the postseason to just this dramatic level and like cons teams into giving him bigger contracts. Uh, but I mean, that's also a reason why the Lakers are determined to keep him because we just talked about that point guard market. It is bleak. There is not really not a way me. for the Lakers to replace, you know, um, what he can do. So yeah, I mean, I, I, keep hearing like Spencer Dinwiddie trades thrown around like a Beverly for Dinwiddie deal like kind of interests me because how much do you need Patrick Beverly's perimeter defense when you already have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard like wouldn't you rather have a guy who can actually you know create some things on offense so and then like I also like that deal for Brooklyn because like Dinwiddie's not gonna have the ball in his hands that much when you have Durant and Kyrie Irving and they could use somebody who actually plays some defense like Beverly so that's a deal that um kind of makes sense to me. I don't think they have the goods to get into the holiday sweepstakes uh, just because all of their first round picks obviously are in Oklahoma City's hands for the rest of the decade and they don't really have a ton of young players who move the needle unless like New Orleans is enamored with Terrence Mann for some reason but you already have Lonzo Ball so what are we doing here? Uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how I feel about the point guard thing. Uh, it's it's very tricky um, but they, they just got to bring in someone who thinks about moving the ball every once in a while. <laughs> I did not think the Beverly Dinwiddie one makes a lot of sense for both sides. I still, even with Dinwiddie probably hitting free agency next year, I guess the Clippers would have to give up something else in that deal. But I actually like that. And you're, look, I did the Nets look ahead with Christian Winfield from the Daily News the other day. And I was trying to figure out who the Nets' best defender on the roster right now would be. There's Jared Allen, but non-big wise. And DeAndre Jordan, obviously, it might be Kevin Durant, which is a big issue. <laughs> so oh, that yeah. may- that makes a ton of sense for Book, and I didn't even think about that. I was looking while you were talking, which is why the ad played behind me. I was scrolling through um, the point guard market. The names that I'm thinking of, um, like Trey Burke, maybe, but that's not someone – like that's more someone who's going to put pressure on the rim than he's going to like mm-hmm. facilitate your offense. Jeff Teague I think would probably be fairly interesting for them. Uh, options really start to trail off after that. Like yeah. you're limited to the mini MLE, and it's just – I don't know. Shabazz Napier, I think – could do things for them, but that's another player who's like score first. And so if you're really mm-hmm. intrigued by that floor general, that's why the the Rondo stuff is like, I did not think I'd come into this podcast thinking that Rondo would just make a ton of sense for the Clippers. And it's <laughs> like, if he's affordable, it, it does, because that might just be what they need. And look, when you watch their offense, and I'm not sure if you felt the same way, like something just, you said they were top five in offense and defense, but it just felt like their offense had no flow. Like it just, it just felt like it was there and it was, Hey, Kawhi and PG and Lou will. And then sometimes Marcus Morris just like do stuff and we'll like figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much felt like that. Uh, it kind of works because Kawhi is such an excellent isolation player and, you know, Paul George can get a shot off over anybody, uh, especially considering he starts at the two. So like who's guarding him, you know, like you put a six, six guy in front of him and he just shoots over the top of everyone. So they just have so much individual talent that during the regular season, their offense makes sense. Like you can't guard everybody at once, but then when you actually put a scheme into place, it's like, okay, well, um, no one's going to like move the ball or move off the ball. So we can just stay in our spots and everything is going to kind of work out on defense. Uh, the other name I had thought of, I'm curious what you think about it. I don't know if he can do, he quietly had a good season and he's overpaid, but like if it was a matter of you're consolidating uh, I don't even think they have a bunch of salaries they don't want, but if it's like a Montrez Harrell sign and trade, does a Terry Rozier interest you as someone to handle that position? He's, he is overpaid, but with just two years left, 
Uh, is the final year non-guaranteed? No, it's guaranteed. Um, nice job, Hornets. <laughs> uh, but like he can play off the ball, but it feels like he might be able to run more of the offense than Patrick Beverly for sure. Uh, I got to be honest. I watched maybe two games of Charlotte all season. Uh, so the Rosiers, like, uh, you know, season with the Hornets is, uh, something I'm kind of unfamiliar with, um, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, um, he just makes so much money. And then it's like that, I guess this kind of touches on like, um, what would be the next topic for me. So their own free agents, as I mentioned, Trez, Jermichael Green is a player option, which for the life of me, I cannot figure out whether he's going to decline or not. It seems like he could get a little bit more than 5 million, but I, who the hell knows at this point. And then Marcus Morris. Um, who would you say is the most critical of those three to return? Uh, I think Marcus Morse is the most critical. Uh, he, I believe, is the most talented out of all of them, with all due respect to Trez and Jermichael. Uh, he just can do more things with the ball. He's a better scorer. Um, I don't know if he's a better scorer than Trez, but he's like a, a more efficient scorer than Trez, which is something. Uh, and he also plays defense, which Trez is, you know, kind of miss on. Um, and then they just... They gave up all of their best assets in that Marcus Morris trade. Like, they gave up their 2020 first-round pick, which is the last one they can trade until 2027. Um, I'm going to say that again. That's the last one they can trade until 2027. Uh, And then they gave up Jerome Robinson, who, you know, whatever. He's a young player. But, like, it's a nice little sweetener to throw into a deal, especially when you don't have any first-round picks left over. Like, he was the 14th pick in the 2019 NBA draft. There is some, you know, there's going to be that first-round glow on him for a little while where he keeps getting more and more chances. So they gave up a lot to get. Marcus Morris, uh, I think he fits really well next to Kawhi and PG. And I think you can play him as a small ball five, like we were talking about with Michael Green. Um, he could do that, too. They did that a little bit in the Dallas series, and it just it was, worked like gangbusters. Uh, I think Ty Lue's going to have a really good way to use Marcus Morris. So he's the guy I think that has to come back. Um, Michael Green is really interesting because he was making, like, $12 million or something when he was traded to the Clippers uh, on that deal that he signed with Memphis. And... He came back at the room exception, like with the understanding that he was going to be used in a larger role and that the Clippers would take care of him down the line. Um, he was not used in a larger role. No. That's one number one. He was not. Uh, like you mentioned at the start of the show, he was so good at the five against Golden State in that playoff series in 2019. And then the Clippers decided, oh, we're just not going to do that again because. Uh, Obviously. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> so. I think he expects to get paid by this team. They obviously can't really do that and use their mid-level this year. So uh, he didn't really have a good enough season, in my opinion, to opt out and expect a bigger offer unless he wants to go to a losing team like Atlanta or Charlotte or, you know, New York seems to really like power forwards. So maybe that's it. <laughs> but uh, I think he's going to stay with Clippers. I do believe that, like, one of Ty Lue's primary acts as head coach right now has to be just sit down, have a heart-to-heart with Michael and be like, I'm going to make things happen for you. Like you are going to be, you know, regarded like a Channing Fry or something of that level in my system. So I think he stays. uh, I don't think the Clippers should be losing sleep of what happens to Trez. Like if he gets an offer somewhere else, good for him. He deserves the money. He's worked really hard. If he doesn't, then you have all the leverage to lowball him and just keep him around as a regular season employee who should not be seeing very many minutes in the playoffs. I'm wondering if with Jermichael Green, if they could just be like, you know, make it like a, they have his bird rights, but make it a non-bird situation where it's like, hey, we'll give you 120% like raise on what you were supposed to get. So you're making a little bit more than mini MLE because I I agree with you. I think he would struggle to get paid, but a team like Brooklyn would be smart to be like, hey, here's our mini MLE. It's projected to be worth more than you're going to make on your player option. 
And mm-hmm. I think that if you lose him, it ends up being like a fairly big deal because you still want someone behind Zubats. And totally. that, that's my actual question here is how important is Montrez Harrell to this team? And I feel like kind of a shitty human being asking this question because you look at his numbers and just the fire that he'll play with, like most of the time, like his motor, and he clearly is valuable. But for what, knowing that Zubats fared so well this year and then just kind of knowing what the Clippers need, even if he's not going to get two syllable paid, like, is he sort of non-essential to what they're doing now with the makeup of this roster, particularly following the acquisition of Marcus Morris? I wouldn't say he's non-essential. I was probably a little bit too harsh on, like, saying that you could just take him or leave in. But um, it's so hard to talk about his bubble performance because he was just not in the right headspace whatsoever if he playing basketball after losing his grandmother and he wasn't in shape. And when a guy who's already undersized um, doesn't have his, like, fitness going for him it's a real challenge to be effective on the court especially when you're going up against so much bigger guys like Jokic and Boban and like even Mason Plumlee is super athletic and just negates a lot of what Trez has going for him Uh, so I I don't want to put too much stock into what he was doing in the bubble but at the same time like he has built-in disadvantages right like Zubac is a true seven-footer he can guard the best centers on other teams like that is an important thing when you're going against Anthony Davis or Nikola Jokic or uh, I don't know, Carl Anthony Towns down the line, whatever. Um, it's it's a good thing to have, and he's you know a little bit more mobile than the Clippers use him. Uh, you know, I think Zubac can get out on the perimeter a little bit more. He doesn't. He have moves to do that like he often. has like packs in the bottom of his shoes. Like he's like a lot quicker than you you would think when you're watching him. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I I don't think that Trez is your number one center on a playoff roster. And he doesn't provide the spacing that you would hope when you go small because he doesn't shoot from a distance. He doesn't even shoot mid-rangers. Um, so when you're talking about like scheming for a seven-game series, I just don't see how he's one of your top six or seven guys. And so then how much do you want to pay a guy who's great during the regular season because there is supreme value in being ready to play every single game out of 82 or 72 or whatever it ends up being. The Clippers clearly did not have a lot of those guys on the team this year. Montrez was one of them, like one, maybe two or three. So during regular season, great to have Trez around. It's just, this is a team that does not have eyes on the regular season. This is a team that is looking forward to the postseason. And I just don't know how you can justify paying Trez like starter money when he's not going to be playing meaningful minutes on the postseason roster. And I guess what does help them there is like if you look at the cap space teams, I mean, you mentioned New York has an affinity for power forwards and they, if mm-hmm. they view him as a big name, maybe they would pay him. But like Atlanta's off the board after trading for Clint Capella. I don't right. – Charlotte, I guess, he makes like some sense there, but they need – they already have like those – like Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington, neither of whom could play the five, and now you're going to bring in Harrell, who is like sort of in the same boat a little bit. And so that should drive – Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I like the Charlotte fit a lot just because he's from North Carolina. It's very close to home. And uh, they just need somebody who can score, you know, like in the worst way. So it's it's pretty well suited, in my opinion, to Trez because the other guys on that roster, like Terry Rozier, Devontae Graham, like they demand the ball, but none of the bigs do, none of the wings do. So there's an opportunity there for him to do what he does really well. Um, but again, I don't know if he wants to be in a winning situation. Like it's very different from going from a team that's competing for a championship to not to Charlotte. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and look, I, some people have floated that he's a Toronto type of player. I hate the fit with Pascal Siakam. So I'll, I'll be, but if that's like an actual thing, there's your Fred Van Fleet sign and trade. I don't know how you get under the, 
like, you know, you hard cap yourself in that scenario. I don't know what like you have to do beyond that, but if that's actually true, which I would doubt significantly that it is, he seems like a terrible fit for what Toronto has. But if they're losing Ibaka and, and Marcus All, I mean, maybe, but there's your Fred Van Fleet fit. Is it? So who do you think is actually more important to this team um, to have on the roster next season, Lou Williams or Montrez Harrell? Because it's like you described how like Harrell's like not as valuable in the playoffs. And I think it's now it's like a fact. I know Lou Williams gets like mad when you talk about this, but he's mm-hmm. he's not nearly as valuable in the playoffs. Uh, yeah, 100 percent on that. Uh, his foul baiting thing doesn't really work in the postseason. Uh, teams just put bigger players on him, which I don't know why they don't do during the regular season, but they just put a bigger on him. And it's really hard for Lou to get his. Angles like I mean Denver just put Tory Craig on him and Tory Craig is 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 a player you know he does things but like he shouldn't be you know uh, taking your third best offensive player out of a series and that's what he was doing um, in that Denver series so yeah the thing with Lou is just like like we said you know they, they don't really have a playmaker and Lou Williams is the closest thing they have to that so if you address that need in a different way then yeah you can get rid of Lou Williams but the way the roster is presently constructed you kind of need him. Yeah, that's a good point too. Because if you're worried about having a playmaker, he's at least like a facsimile of a point guard. If you want, to, like, he's going to be score first, and look, he deserves to be with the way that he can get buckets in the regular season. The, mm-hmm. Sort of the last question on this: Do you think that Zubats' performance in the bubble factors into Trez's future at all? Because it's like, you know, he was really good on offense too. I think it, last time I checked, or I think it was like 1.2 points per possession as the the role man. There's, I feel like Trez has more of like a post game, but I don't think the Clippers need to run anything through the post. Exactly. And so like when you're looking at Zubots and thinking that he should be ready for, you know, more than the 18.4 minutes per game he averaged during the regular season, do you think that maybe factors in at all to how much you're then willing to to pay Trez or maybe that number's actually lower look from the Clippers standpoint than it was at the beginning of this past year? I think that's a really good point. Um, for whatever reason, uh, Doc Rivers, you know, artificially capped Zubach's minutes this season. And last season, um, but he was much, you know, in a much different situation, having just come over at the trade deadline, right. and the Lakers were sporadically using him. So it was, it was a weird time. That but, giving him away, by the way, that's uh, uh, that remains just a funny little anecdote. But I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Zero you. sense, just zero sense. But it's so funny because like the Clippers went on this like little um, uh, spin narrative last year because everyone like had so much fun with the Zubach deal just because it objectively like was a. In the Ridiculous. moment, too. Like, this isn't even people with the benefit of hindsight. Everyone, like, Zubats wasn't considered the star, but he was actually effective in the time he was playing, and they treated exactly. him like he was dead weight. Um, so they, they created this, like, spin narrative that was like, well, actually, our Memphis trade was really good. You know, like, when we got Garrett Temple into Michael Green, and they started pushing that as much as possible because they wanted to, like, get some credit for what their front office did instead of just being, like, the beneficiary of Magic Johnson's <laughs> lunacy. Uh, so, anyway, that's a story for a different day. But... Zubach only 23 years old. He's going to be 24 next season. He's firmly, you know, on that growth trajectory where like he should be able to handle more minutes. Uh, he's just really solidly good pick and roll partner. He protects the rim just phenomenally well. Uh, Kawhi loves him. Kawhi really, really likes playing that two man game with Zubach. So to me, it just seems like, yeah, you just put more and more of your eggs in the Zubach basket. He's on a fantastic contract. It's a three years left, about 7 million per year. So like, that's the kind of thing where like you could use it for salary match, but why would you? Because you're not going to get anybody that good. Uh, I love Zubach. I think he absolutely deserves a bigger role. And as he takes a bigger and bigger role, you know, you can just uh, 
those minutes that trust plays, like you said, like they just don't exist as much. So, uh, I mean, I don't really think it's controversial with Ibiza. Like he's, he's really good. He should be playing more. Um, presumably Ty Lu will play him more and then you don't need as many centers beyond him because, uh, he's just, you know, taking more of the responsibility. Right. And it's like, if you have Marcus Morris there too, like it feels like the, the need, even when you're playing matchups to ever have Trez close games becomes almost non-existent because Morris is going to be better when you downsize. Zubats is going to be better if you're going up against a big with like more like brute force or girth to them. And then like, where does Trez fit into that? Because I don't know that you, if you have Marcus Morris at the five, it defeats the purpose. Or if you have Marcus, this doesn't defeat the purpose, but like, if you're trying to downsize, you're favoring spacing, which Harold isn't going to help you with. And then playing Harold and Zubats together for like long stretches at a time, particularly in the end of close games, just seems like a potential disaster. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to lose green, I guess, yeah, then you've got to keep Trez. But right. if you keep green and Morris, then you can totally get by without Montrez. Um, even if you, you know, would still like him for this regular season, just like innings eating, you know. Um, this question, I feel like we've almost danced around it talking about like what the Clippers could do with some of their players, but who do you think is the player that's most likely to get traded but before next season on this roster? <sighs> Good question. Um, I think it's Lou Will or Patrick Beverly. Um, just because, I mean, if you think about the guys who are under contract, it's not a long list. Um, so you got to, you know, trade somebody who's actually going to be there for a little bit. But I think the Clippers were uh, quietly very disappointed with Lou Will's actions um, during the restart. The fact that he uh, jeopardized his ability to play by, you know, going to Magic City, getting the wings. Uh, it obviously, you know, Lou has a long track record of not performing great during the postseason. He was he was pretty good last year against Golden State. Um, but even then, like, he would have really good games and then really bad games. So it's not like you can entirely blame his performance on the fact that he wasn't allowed to practice for 10 days in a row. Right. But it certainly is not a good look that your team is complaining about conditioning. And then it's like, oh, well, I mean, wasn't there a guy who was stuck in a 10-day quarantine because he had to get some chicken wings? Like, it's not it's not ideal. No. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of, like, reestablishing a culture in Los Angeles, like, I'm not sure that Lou Williams is the guy to set that culture. So... That's one of the reasons why I could see him on his way out. And then also, like we talked about, he's just not great in the playoffs. And again, this is what the team is aiming for. And then Beverly, just because he's that salary and he's not really a point guard. So you can kind of kind of approximate what he does just with other pieces. Like, you know, um, that's I mean, you have to like send out something of value when you get something back. So that's where right. I would see like either one of Beverly or Lou Williams on their way out. Yeah. Do you do you think that they like how married do you think they are to Landry Shamit? Um, because it seems like so they could do like, if they wanted to take real salary back, like I think the most expendable package, like I think they could go Lou will Rodney Magruder and then sham it as that sweetener. And then you're at 15.3 mm -hmm. million in salary. You could take back more than that. Um, but do you think that they would be willing to, because he is probably their best, like their best trade asset, I guess you could say left because in the absence of those first round picks, like they can't. They did a swap with that. First of all, it's the most pointless swap I've ever seen with the Knicks. With next the Knicks, season. right? That was that was just very cute. Like you saw that, and you were like, "I don't like." Is New York just trying to like maybe handcuff the Clippers from making any other moves? But like that was just funny. Like I, that's still one of the funniest swaps ever. But like, do you think they view him as more of like a, a long term piece, someone who's really important to this roster? Because one, impact players in theory are on rookie scale deals are like paramount to teams that where their payroll is going to be sky high. Or do you mm -hmm. think that they would be willing to maybe when you're talking about, if they wanted to load up and go after a drew holiday, 
I still don't think they would have the asset firepower to do that. But if they were looking to really substantially upgrade, do you think they'd be willing to include Shamit in that type of a deal? I mean, I think you you kind of answered your own question there, right? Like if they go for a super high powered upgrade, you know, like if you're getting holiday, then yeah, Shamit's on the table. But um, I don't think they're just going to, you know, include him willy nilly as like a, a sweetener. It's like you said, they, they just don't have a lot of flexibility and Shamit is on what year three of his rookie deal is relatively class controlled, not just year three of his rookie deal. Like he was 20 something picks. So that contract is tiny. Right. And uh, you know, he's just not making any money right now. Um, I will say one of the strangest things about the 2019, 20 season was that Shamit seems like exactly the kind of player that Doc Rivers loves. You know, he's JJ Redick light, right? He learned under Redick in Philadelphia. He came into the Clippers after the trade deadline, which is guns blazing, right? Like he's a crucial part of that team that, you know, won the eighth seed and then ended up taking two games from golden state. Uh, and he obviously hits that shot in game two to complete the 31 point comeback, you know, in Oracle, it's like, truly, I think it's one of the greatest shots in Clipper history, which says something about the story of the Clippers, but um, it's, you know, Shea throwing the ball to Landry, it feels like it's your future. And then obviously things did not work out that way, but I just think he's the kind of guy that you need to like juice your half court offense. Like you just need somebody who's going to run around, move through screens. Like it. I can't see them letting him go unless it's like, supremely necessary you know like they'll they'll try to like pot prop up terrence man's value or like you know hey yandu cabangeli was a first round pick last year are you interested or amir coffee we turned this two-way guy into like a really decent wing or uh i guess that's it but uh, um no i, I don't think shame it's really like on the table um i had looked this up actually before we started recording and i was actually surprised because it didn't feel like i saw i probably maybe i just didn't watch enough of the clippers but they played um, over 650 possessions where Shamit was like sort of their de facto point guard. And I think mm-hmm. Earl, not so much in Philly, but when he came over in the trade to LA um, that first half season, it looked like he could run a little bit of pick and roll. Is that something you could see them? I guess maybe that happens in the absence of them not being able to upgrade a playmaker, but do you think they should have maybe leaned on those lineup looks more or no? The thing is, I just love Shamit as like a knockdown shooter. Who's just going to stretch that defense. You know, um, you can't be that and a playmaker at the same time. That's true. Um, so, like, when he's playing with Paul George, obviously, like, you can let Paul George be that guy and then, you know, let Shaman do a little bit more of the playmaking or vice versa. But um, it seemed like they just had to do that a lot because, you know, they did during the playoffs because Patrick Beverly was injured and Reggie Jackson was a defensive train wreck, so they put Shaman in at the one, and that was, I think, a really successful lineup for them. Uh, in general, um, Doc used to say this a lot, that, like, you can tell how well our half-court offense is moving by how many shot attempts Shaman gets. Um, like when he plays well, it's generally a good barometer for how things are looking for the Clippers. Um, so yeah, maybe they could, you know, in second unit situations, potentially rely on Shamit's ball handling a little more, but I just, I love him with that starting unit as just this, this Reddit type, right? Like he's so incredibly important to their spacing, even with guys like PG who can shoot and Kawhi is a decent shooter, but, um, I wouldn't rely on that in the starting unit. Just I don't think he has the playmaking juice to really hack it against starting, you know, defenses. But like right. as a second unit option, I think it's something that they could look into. Yeah, and I guess if you were playing with a starting unit anyway, in that situation, like Shamit's not going to be your ball handler. That's going to be Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. So that rendered that question by me totally pointless. Um, I didn't have this on the list that I sent you, but it does feel pertinent. The Clippers are obviously operating under the sense of urgency because Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both have player options for next season. But knowing that they orchestrated their way to be here, like 
I feel if the Clippers get out to a slow start or if they're struggling, that we will hear rumors that one of them might leave. Like, how actually concerned about that do the Clippers need to be? So Ty Lu said after his introductory press conference, like, I expect these guys to be here for a very long time because they chose to be here. Um, NBA stars are fickle. <laughs> I don't think that we can say that uh, they, just because they wanted to be here, that they're going to be here for the long haul. Obviously, PG and Kawhi have both made it very clear how lovely it is for them to be around their families and to play for a team that they ended up rooting for when they were kids. And it's it's just a good holistic off-the-court situation for them to be in Southern California. Um I mean, the Lakers could also have cap space next offseason, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I was getting back to the point. Um, I don't think it's something that they really need to worry about because the situation with the two of them is better than what they're going to find pretty much right. anywhere else. Uh, I do think that the Clippers should think really hard about extending Paul George this summer. I'm not this summer, this offseason, because then you get you know one of those stars locked in and then it's like a much sweeter carrot for Kawhi to stick around uh potentially it really alleviates a lot of the pressure on Paul George too knowing that like he's set you know and right. it's um something less to focus on like less of a distraction to worry about because he's you know he's been in this situation a lot like he demanded the trade from Indiana he was upcoming for Asian Oklahoma City like I, I just think it's a lot to play under I think he plays better when he's in a more stable situation uh, that's pure speculation I just think it's something that they should consider um just to get that extension locked up with Paul George so that it's, you know, one less thing to worry about. Yeah, and I would normally say that it makes more sense for him to wait, but I'm wondering if any of the financial tumult of what's to come slash does it help the Clippers that he's kind of coming off uh, a postseason where he became pandemic P? Like, does that make it just more likely that he's going to to seek an extension to himself where he might have been more inclined to wait and, and just see, um, not even survey the land next summer, but just be able to sign a longer deal at that point? Yep, I, I think uh, you're you're right on with that. Just the financials kind of make sense for an extension. Like he can get um, like forty some in his first year, and like that's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last question I have for you: uh, What's one thing I didn't ask you that you would want to talk about this team, or just simply the most undercovered or misunderstood thing about these Clippers? Okay, so we talked about Ibiza Zubac a lot, which is great because um, you know he's he's my favorite player on the Clippers, and he deserves more time and. I'm glad that he's, you know, getting the love that he deserves after the good, really good playoffs that he had. Um, let's see. We haven't talked much about... Uh, Kawhi or PG, know. ironically. I find that funny yeah. that I just went through this whole podcast and I only asked you, like, one question pertaining to them. Uh, that's okay. We know, we know what we have there. Uh, I'm just fascinated by this, uh, this Clippers coaching staff that they're bringing in, like, Chauncey Phillips as the lead assistant coach, theoretically, uh, who's never coached before. Um Ty keeps talking about like the the cachet that he has with players. You know, he's a Finals MVP champion. He walks into a room and he like commands respect. Uh, that's cool, I guess. I don't know. Um, I I did a little digging. I found out about this like trip to the Dominican Republic that uh, Chauncey and Ty and Larry Drew took one summer. Um, apparently, they're like all besties, which is such a weird like group to think of. I don't even think they really played with each other. But right, I didn't uh, even know Larry Drew was the same age group as them. I thought I, he I was like he is sixty two. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they took a trip to the Dominican and like uh, this is when. Uh, Ty found out that Chauncey is like deathly afraid of cats. Um, and like Ty is really scared of dogs or it's opposite. I don't know. Um, the the Clippers are going through a lot of like uh, big changes. Like they, it's, it's really interesting. This, I mentioned this earlier that the organization has like very little sentimentality. And I, I get that because like, what are you holding on in Clippers history? That's so good. You know, like sure. why would you need to like hold to the past when you could just blaze forward? Um, 
But I wonder if we're hitting a point where like um, players start to feel like assets, you know? Um, and like, they just don't really have a culture here. Like I talked about Kawhi, you know, not fitting in San Antonio. And then he just sort of like was like an ancillary piece in Toronto where they had this very established thing that Kyle Lowry had built. Um, the Clippers don't really have anything here. Like they, I, it felt like they were building something with Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Montrose thing on that scrappy eight seed last year. And then they just completely washed that away by bringing in two new guys and letting them have the keys to the kingdom. Uh, so I'm interested to see just if it, I don't know if it's harmonious. Like I right. think the Clippers are going to be really good. I think they're going to, you know, play better than they did last year. I would expect them to make a conference finals this year, barring some dramatic changes to the landscape of free agency. But it just, it feels so hard for them. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how else to say it. Like the Lakers had this like happy go lucky moment, you know, um, just this dramatic turnaround from like LeBron James coming in and hating all the young players. And then all of a sudden, like everybody's having such a great time. And theoretically the Clippers should be having a really great time. Like they have all of the talent in the world. And I don't know, there's just like this connective tissue that's missing. And I don't know how you address that. I wonder if Ty Lue's the guy to fix that. Uh, but that's the thing I'm kind of most interested in. And it's the hardest thing to like judge, you know, just by watching the teams, especially like when we're watching them remotely. But you, you could feel it on the Clippers last year that like they were just kind of going through the motions and I'm interested to see how that works this year with like all of this new blood coming in. So. Yeah. Cause it's uh, because the other question that would be, can a coach is a coach even capable of filling that void? Because there's going to be mm-hmm. like that inherent separation between he and the players. And so it does feel like they need that type of a vet and, you know, Beverly and Montrose Harrell, while they might be outspoken, it might be like the wrong kind of outspoken where they might be mm-hmm. more, I want to use the word like combative, but like you need someone to like provide levity to like, they need their Channing Fry. It feels like in the they locker. They're like they Jared Dudley or something. Yeah. Jared, yeah. Uh, maybe Jared Dudley wants to, you know, cross over and keep playing this year. And I, I do think that puts you in a, a I'll say a small predicament when t- your two best players are not that guy. Like, because for as much as LeBron might be grading and he has needed strong vets around him, like you at least know that he's someone who's going to be able to rally the troops and like, Paul George and Kawhi have just never been those players. That's fine. They're fantastic players in their own right. Kawhi is one of the three or five best players in the league, but it does feel, you know, you call it the connective tissue and that's, I feel like that's a really great point. Even if Ty Lue is just fantastic at that, it feels like they might need that vet, whether he plays or not, who can come in and, and provide that oomph for them. Yeah. And I mean, they, they like use their last roster spot on Joe Kim Noah last season. I don't, I don't know if he's going to stick around um, or, you know, maybe just sign one more contract with the Bulls and play with Billy Donovan again. But, uh, and then they like brought in Patrick Patterson because Paul George asked for him to come and then, Oh, I didn't, I didn't even know that part of it. Yeah. They were friends in Oklahoma city or something. Um, but yeah, I, I I just want like a little like heart, you know, to this team, something more of like a personality even. Right. Yeah. Um, Sabrina, thank you so much for giving me uh, a ton of your time. This conversation was fantastic. If you guys are not following Sabrina on Twitter, remedy that immediately. A fantastic follow. Covers the bas- uh, covers the NBA and the California-based team specifically. At large for SB Nation, at Sabrina JM. That's at S-A-B-R-E-E-N-A-J-M. Thank you so much again for coming on. And uh, rest assured, I'm sure that I'll be bothering you again for another appearance in the future. Yeah, this was great. Love talking to Clippers. 
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.